0: Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so one of the ways in which we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is to turn to the people around us and welcome them here today. Let us say together the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. We light the fire of truth and ask to be clear, wise, and humble enough to admit when we don't know. We kindle the warmth of community and ask for open-handed hardness and patience. We are grateful to the spirit of life and ask to learn the secret to loving and being loved.
1: Uh, our first reading comes from Black Elk. Uh, Black Elk was a Wichisha Wakan, a holy man, and a Hayoka of the Oglala Lakota people. He was a second cousin to the war leader Crazy Horse. That which comes within the souls of people when they realize their relationship, their oneness with the universe, and all its powers... And when they realize at the center of the universe dwells the Great Spirit, and that its center is really everywhere, it is within each of us.
0: This congregation has a mission that it wrote for itself to guide our decisions as we move together into the future, to remind ourselves of what we're doing here. We wrote it on the wall, and we say it every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. A lot of times after we say the um, mission statement, I have a little moment to think about uh, beloved community. And so I just want to say, if you wonder why we... Identify when we're talking about the context of our um, readings, why do I say this is the person who's Ogallala Sioux? this is a person who's African-American, this is a person who's white? Um, some of you might wonder, or one of you has said, you know, when you said Ralph Waldo Emerson was a white Unitarian Universalist minister, I was like, Psh, why are you saying that? Because normally, normally... In our culture, when we don't racially identify someone, it means they are the norm. And whiteness is the norm. And uh, we don't want it to be that way. We're trying to dismantle that culture that makes whiteness the norm. And as a way to decenter whiteness, we racially identify everybody. Because why should white people be the only ones who are not racially identified?
1: Our meditative reading is a responsive reading. You'll find it in the gray hymnal. It's The Oversoul by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I'll have you read the italic, please. Let us learn the revelation of all nature and thought, that the highest dwells within us, that the sources of nature are in our own minds as there is no screen or ceiling between our heads and the infinite heavens, so there is no bar or wall in the soul where we, the effect, cease and God, the cause, begins. I am constrained every moment to acknowledge a higher origin for events than the will I call mine.
0: There is deep power
1: in which we exist, and whose beatitude is accessible to us. Every moment when the individual feels invaded by it it is memorable. It comes to the lowly and simple. It comes to whosoever will put off what is foreign and proud. It comes as insight. It comes as serenity and grandeur. The soul's health consists in the fullness of its reception. Forever and ever, the influx of this better and more universal self is new and unsearchable. Within us is the soul of the whole, the wise silence, the universal beauty to which every part and particle is equally related, the eternal one. When it breaks through our intellect, it is genius. When it breathes through our will, it is virtue. When it flows through our affections, it is love.
0: And now let us enter the wise silence in the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson together so that we might invite the one soul of all things to come into us and give us Clarity and peace, grandeur, wisdom, genius, and love. Let us enter the silence together. So once in a while, there's a town or a cafe or a bar or an island where people um, come together and they inspire each other and they build on each other and they compete with each other and they um, trash each other's paintings and they talk about which are the best ones and talk about each other's poetry and each other's art and they um, they make each other better just by being around each other and sometimes we call that a genius cluster. And there was a genius cluster in Concord, Massachusetts in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. Um, they founded... The Unitarian strand that is transcendentalism, and they were made possible by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Here's the story Emerson was born to a Unitarian minister and his wife, and it was in 1803, and that was the same time that Beethoven was writing the Eroica Symphony. Napoleon was thinking about invading Poland. Uh, The government made the Louisiana Purchase, which doubled the size of the U.S. Emerson's father died when he was eight, and the mother struggled to make ends meet. And the rescuer was Aunt Mary Moody Emerson, who paid for Waldo, as he liked to be called, to go to the Latin school in Boston and then to Harvard, she paid for everything. He had a lackluster academic career. He was uh, senior year, the poet, the class poet, Um, but only after six other people had turned it down. (laughs) And Mary Moody Emerson was said to be a curmudgeon having the questionable gift of being able to say more unpleasant things in the course of half an hour than anyone else on the planet. (laughs) Waldo became a Unitarian minister and fell in love with a delicate young woman named Ellen Tucker. They married as soon as she turned 18. And she was set to come into a lot of money when she was 21. I mean, a big glob of money and he loved her to distraction she died before her 21st birthday and he was just taken apart by grief he didn't do well at his church he lost his faith he I know he just felt like that. He was, he was mad about it. Until, I mean, really one day he went to the gravesite about a year after she died and, and dug it up and opened the coffin so he could see her again. And he was mad enough that he sued her family to get the inheritance that had been due her. The family did not feel like he should have it. But the court did. So suddenly Emerson was rich and the amount of money he had, just the interest on it, paid him as much as his church had paid him per year. So he quit and started being a lecturer. He um, lectured in Cape Cod one day and in a post-lecture reception conversation with a lovely young woman named Lydia, he thought she would do So a few months later, he wrote her a letter proposing marriage and apologized that he didn't really have the time to come propose face-to-face. You know what Dr. Maya Angelou always says, used to say, still says through her writings, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. But she wrote back and accepted his proposal, and he wrote back and said, the only thing is, I need you to change your name to Lydian, okay? And she said, okay, I'm Lydian now. And they got married and started a family, moved to Concord, bought a big house by the road. Emerson liked to invite people that he enjoyed conversation with to Concord so that they could have conversation. And one of the people that he enjoyed was um, Bronson Alcott, who had started a temple school in Boston, but it had just gone broke because Bronson Alcott had some ideas that were odd for that time, like children's spirits don't need to be broken and they should maybe move around during the day and they should maybe learn things they're curious about instead of the things that are on the list for the teacher to teach them. And that they should learn about procreation. That was the scandal. (laughs) So he invited the Alcotts to come to Concord and stay. He found a house for them to rent, and truth be told, he paid the rent. Because Bronson Alcott was a dreamer and a talker, and he was not really employable. In fact, he would sit on a bench on the road, talking to passersby. And it got to where the passersby would walk extra to go around He was asked, Waldo Emerson was asked to give the graduation address at Harvard, where a class of ministers was graduating, Harvard Divinity School. And he came down so hard on the local churches, he talked about how dull they were, how rule-bound, frozen, and intellectual in their minister's sermons, that it was impossible for their people to get nourishment at church. He painted an alternative of finding the divine in nature. Of being one with everything. Of following your inner wisdom. Of respecting the knowledge that comes from your own experiences. He hated quotations. It's ironic that we quote him so much. But he said you should not get your knowledge from other people's experiences but from your own. And... Uh, He was so vituperative about the churches that he pointed to out the window of the chapel, Um, that Unitarian Church and that Unitarian Church, frozen, dull, no nourishment there, Uh, Harvard asked him not to come back. (laughs) Until he was an old man. They asked him to come preach the memorial service for people who had lost their lives in the Civil War. So the Alcotts moved in down the street. Emerson continued to travel and write and um, lecture. So uh, another friend who came to Concord, he'd been born there. His family owned a pencil factory. There was David Henry Thoreau. And he changed his name to Henry David Thoreau. And um, worked for the Emersons. He worked for the Emersons as the children's tutor. He was like a forest sprite. He was, he, he was like a childlike person. He loved, he knew the names of every bird, he knew every bird call, he knew the name of every plant in the forest. He did not take baths. He <laughs> did not comb his hair. He did not have civilized manners, but um, the children loved him. Uh, he became the tutor for the Emerson's two sons, and he was always there. And when Emerson would go um, on the road, Thoreau would just move into the house and take care of everything, fixed everything. He he courted Lydian's sister. Um, She was 40. He was in his 20s, but he thought she was elegant and wonderful. But uh, she left, and he really... Loved Lydian for the rest of their lives. He made Lydian a new secret little compartment underneath one of the dining room chairs to store her best gloves. He planted the garden. He weeded. He fixed the house. He taught the children. Um, He was writing a book about a canoe trip that he and his brother John took and um, Finally, a publisher decided to publish the Canoe Trip book. Um, It didn't sell, so the publishers did not like that. Thoreau was not good at schmoozing. He only drank water. He didn't get a haircut. Um, He decided that he was going to um, move to the woods. And so uh, the Emersons gave him a wood lot out and back on a little pond named Walden Pond. And they also gave him the wood to build a little cabin. So when you think (laughs) self-sufficiency, you know, he goes, I've gone to the woods to make life that's most simple. His mother stopped by at least every other day with donuts. I mean, you can paint people with too broad a brush, but people are complicated. His brother John had died, and the same year, Emerson's young son, Waldo, died of scarlet fever, and the whole community was bonded in sorrow over these two deaths. Another frequent guest in the community was the brilliant and beautiful Margaret Fuller. There she is. She had been educated way beyond the level that most women were educated in that time. Her father had made sure she learned Greek and Latin, literature, French, uh, theology, philosophy. She was fun to talk to, and she was gorgeous, and all the men loved her, and she would stay across the hallway from Emerson's study in a bedroom there, and they wrote letters across the hall. And Lydian didn't like the way Emerson looked at her. She didn't like that they wrote letters. She didn't like that they took long walks in the woods. She didn't like the way her husband lit up around Margaret Fuller. And so Lydia just took to her bed when Margaret was in the house. Margaret was so educated, she um, made a living by hosting conversations. It was all for women because women were allowed to talk in public in a mixed group. Um, but she had conversations with other women at the Peabody's bookstore, Elizabeth Peabody and her sister Sophie. And um, women would come from far and wide to hear her radical ideas about uh, woman's place, um, marriage, and sexuality. And she had radical ideas. And everybody loved to debate her. The men would say, oh, she will break her sword on your shield. I don't know what that means, but it sounds ferocious. <laughs> Plus, she was gorgeous. Did I mention gorgeous? Another friend who came to this cluster of people in Concord was Nathaniel Hawthorne. He had courted Elizabeth Peabody, but he decided to marry Sophie. Sophie was a little quieter and more sickly, um, maybe less challenging than Elizabeth. That's one author's theory. Emerson arranged for a friend of him, his to rent the Hawthorns a house in Concord. Uh, it was in walking distance of his house. I don't know what walking distance meant in those days, like five miles. I don't know. They, they were healthy, hearty people. And so this house was close to the Emerson's and the Alcott's. Uh. And so when Thoreau was there, Alcott's was there, Louisa May was growing up in her household, her father felt it was really important to be vegetarian, so they had a vegetarian household. Other Unitarians at the time um, experimented with vegetarianism, a raw food diet, All they were way ahead of the times. They had a transcendental club that Emerson hosted. Hawthorne was handsome, did I say that? He was handsome. And... If Emerson was in love with Margaret Fuller, Hawthorne was in love with her more. They used to take long walks in the woods and they would take a blanket and sit on it and talk for hours. I don't know them. But I was a therapist for 15 years, and I know people. <laughs> Sophie Hawthorne it, handled it in the exact opposite way from Lydian. Sophie decided she loved Margaret Fuller even more than Nathaniel did. She said she's the most fabulous woman in the world. I would just go to the ends of the earth for her. Well, one day Emerson went walking in the woods to find Margaret Fuller, and he found her talking to um, Nathaniel Hawthorne, the handsome. And suddenly, the friend that had rented the Hawthorns his house needed his house back. <laughs> so they moved to Salem, and in his grief and loss, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote. A book about a woman who was made to wear a scarlet letter A after having been caught in an affair and she embroidered it with gold thread insisting that coming together with her lover was a sacred act. Sophie Hawthorne hated that book. (laughs) She knew exactly who that woman was. Horace Greeley invited Margaret Fuller to come back to New York and be an editor of the New York Tribune. So she left to do that. Thoreau came out of the woods and began living in Concord again. His book about the boat trip hadn't sold, and so now his little journal of his time at Walden Pond could not find a publisher. They were like, "What is this? this? Is like some kind of memoir? We don't do that in America. We don't have memoirs here. I don't know. Nobody's going to want to read that." So, guess who paid to have it published? Emerson. Emerson paid the rent. Emerson gave the land. Emerson paid. Emerson paid. Emerson paid. Many of the homes in Concord were on the Underground Railroad where enslaved men and women who were escaping slavery would come and stay on their way up to wherever they were headed. Emerson paid for that, too. So throughout this story is the refrain, Emerson paid, Emerson paid, Emerson paid... And I know that some of you all are Emerson's in this congregation, and you pay a lot more than other people. And I know that sometimes you may not feel all that cheerful about that. And sometimes you may not feel it's fair. And you're right, it's not. And Emerson felt like it wasn't fair either. And yet he paid. And because of Emerson doing that, being generous, whether it was through uh, open-heartedness or clenched teeth, Because he did that, we have Louisa May Alcott and American literature. We have Nathaniel Hawthorne and his grief. We have Thoreau. Because he did that, we have transcendentalism, which is what most of us are. We believe that everything is connected, the oneness of all things, that you can find the divine in nature, that you should trust your own experiences, that revelation is ongoing and not locked up in a book. Those people affected us tremendously, and we are who we are because of them, and you can feel their ancestry of us. You can feel their DNA in the Unitarian Universalist congregations now. Margaret Fuller became a journalist and traveled overseas. She was like the first female foreign correspondent. And she covered the revolution in Italy. And the rumors came back to Boston that she was in love with a count, an Italian count who'd been disinherited because of his revolutionary activities. And that she was going to have a baby. We don't know if they were married yet. I know, so that's the sound we make here. Think of the sound they made in Boston. (laughs) There was a lot of pearl clutching around there. You know there was. And she decided she wanted to come back to the States with the Count and with baby Nino. So they came, even though she had a bad feeling about this trip Robert Browning, the poet, had a bad feeling and tried to talk her out of coming back. Um, Her friends in Boston said, Oh, Margaret, no, you cannot come back with your foreign husband and that foreign child, and that you may not have been married. We, no, there's just no place for you here anymore. But lo, she came because she was Margaret Fuller and she was not scared. So, the captain of the ship came down with smallpox and died once they were not too far away from Europe. And the new captain was less experienced. A lot of people got smallpox. Baby Nino got it, but he got better. And so finally, they got to the shores of the States. But the captain overshot the harbor in New York and ran aground right off of Fire Island, like 300 yards from the shore in a gale. So, picture this this is the opera. The gale, the waves, the people on the shore in horror wanting to help or waiting for the ship to break up so they could salvage some stuff, take it home. You could see everybody on the ship. You could just watch it happen. Margaret Fuller, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Margaret Fuller is in her white flowy nightgown that's blowing out in the wind Her hair is blowing out, this long black stream of hair blowing out. She takes her baby, and the sailor says, Just strap him to me. I can get there. I can get to the shore. She straps him to the sailor and watches them both drown. And she didn't even try to get off the ship. She just stood there as the ship sank. One of the reasons the ship sank was because it had too much stuff in the hold. One of the things in the hold that we, me, just me, are blaming for the wreck was a bust of John C. Calhoun. A Unitarian, sorry. Not one of the angels in the abolition disagreements. Ugh. So, as the gale went, that bust just went bam, bam, bam against the inside of the hold, they think. And the ship went down. The bust was recovered. I'm going to find out where that thing is. I'm not going to do anything. Just maybe Facebook Live. Like, that's it. That's the one. I don't, I don't know. But see why I think it's an opera. Somebody should write an opera. I just think it's interesting that our people were human. And interesting humans at that. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Now sing with me if you care to. I know this rose will open. I know my fear will burn away. I know my soul will unfurl its wings. I know this rose will open. Go in peace.
1: This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.